Good morning, my name is Sarah Sullivan and I'm a member here at St. George's. And I'm going to be reading from the Good News according to Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of us, of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village, to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had made he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread the gospel of christ praise to you lord jesus christ good morning This morning's scripture is a fairly well-known 
story. Two followers of Jesus, one named Cleopas, are on their way from Jerusalem to their home in a town called Emmaus, about 10 kilometers away. And while en route, they meet Jesus, but somehow they don't recognize him. In that the two invited Jesus to their home, we suspect that they were a married couple. They were not part of the twelve, but they were followers of Jesus. How much of his ministry they actually witnessed, we don't know, but they do reveal that they knew a lot about him. Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, they said. This couple is distraught. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That is, following the model of the Israelites being set free from slavery in Egypt some 1,300 years previous. These two hoped that Jesus would liberate Israel from foreign rulers. But he didn't. The Romans killed him. And this couple is doing what Jewish followers of any messianic figure did in the first century when the Romans killed their leader. They went home. There was nothing else to do. When they had expressed their disappointment to Jesus, Luke's, Luke makes a very significant statement. Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Now, I must tell you that what Jesus said here is something that many, many interpreters of the Bible would uh, like to be privy to. I take it that Jesus was not simply citing a number of predictions in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by him, but rather he was explaining how the whole narrative of Scripture, Torah and the prophets, found their fulfillment in him. Like the climax of a murder mystery, when you find out who done it, Jesus was the surprising climax of the narrative that stretched back to Abraham. I suppose using an analogy of a murder mystery might be a bit ironic when talking about Jesus. I suspect the story that Jesus would have told would have had some of these elements. The Messiah would always be the unexpected one not the military commander, but the one who, care, who cared about the sick and those on the margins of society, the humble, not the proud. That in the ministry of Jesus, God really was returning to Israel as the prophets had promised. 
that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we see God renewing his covenant with Israel, as the prophets had foretold, when he would restore them inwardly and renew their lives. Indeed, that this was all part of the promise of God restoring his creation. That the curse of the book, that the book of Deuteronomy put on Israel for failing to keep Torah was now removed in the Messiah. Israel's representative bearing that curse for her. That Israel would be rescued, not simply from suffering, but through suffering. The suffering spoken of in the Psalms and Isaiah would, in fact, be redemptive. That the real enemy of Israel was not the Romans, but was death itself, ever since Adam and Eve were put out of the Garden of Eden. Death had been the enemy of God's creation. And now with the resurrection of the Messiah, Israel's representative, death itself has been dealt a fatal blow. Pun intended. But interestingly, Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas still haven't figured it out. But when Jesus comes to their home, they serve him food. And Luke says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. I'd like to explore a little further on the significance that these two followers came to Jesus in the context of a meal. I wouldn't be surprised if there had been something distinctive in how Jesus said a blessing before a meal, and that that would have been a pretty good clue to the hosts who it was who had come to visit. The story is often used to link with the, with the Lord's Supper. And theologians often focus on the importance here of both word and sacrament. But I want this morning to focus on the meal. Meals happen to be very important in Scripture. The Bible is framed with food. It begins with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden having an illicit meal. And it ends with the tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth bearing fruit that gives life for all who come there. Um... And then, um, 
there we are. Anybody want a, a, good, a good whiff? Yeah, if you're feeling a little peckish, uh, by all means, um, there's, um, come on up and have a piece. It's best when it's hot. Yeah, here's some, here you are. Uh, I like it with butter. Yeah. No. There you go. Don't try slicing bread like this. Just do it in chunks. Yeah. Thank you, God, for bread. Okay, I'm going to go back up here and just. Just come along. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, for those of you who are um, uh, streaming, <coughs> uh, I think I I think we have to admit that there that there are some great advantages that technology has brought us. Uh, being able to um, do live streaming, to be able to communicate by by voice, by sight. I think we also have to admit that with regard to the senses of smell and taste, uh, technology is an utter failure. Uh, so I'm sorry about that. Um, you know, sometimes you can't make it to church, and I understand that. But, you know, if you just decided to stay at home because um, you couldn't get out of bed, well, this is what you're missing. <clears throat> so there we go. Cheers is right. It's like I should have done more than one loaf. Okay. You, you guys just keep coming. I'm going to carry on, um, and that's fine. So we're talking about the importance of food in the Bible. Uh, we talked about Adam and Eve and then the tree of life in the book of Revelation. One day Abraham welcomed three travelers to his home, and while they were eating fine cakes, it says, maybe it was bread like this, I don't know, uh, they confirmed to him that his elderly wife, Sarah, was going to have a child. Much later in the, in the uh, book of Hebrews, the writer refers to this incident when he writes, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Moses and the elders of Israel ate symbol that Jesus himself would pick up. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. 
The psalmist writes, you prepare a table before me in the midst of my enemies. In other words, God provides nourishment even in the face of opposition. Isaiah looks to the future, the age to come, in terms of dining with the Lord. On this mountain, he says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines. I'm sorry, but in the age to come, there's not going to be any McDonald's. Doshan 7, locals, and Ilfakulne all the way. With desserts provided by hot chocolate. <laughs> but until then, we apparently need to be wary of something called cholesterol. Is it any surprise then? Jesus' parables likens the kingdom of God to a great banquet to which people were invited. We also know that Jesus was known for his table fellowship, especially eating with people who were on the margins. And John, in the book of Revelation, depicts Jesus as knocking at the door. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you, and you with me. Perhaps it's not surprising that food is such an important image in Scripture, since it is such a fundamental human need. But I think we often overlook the significance of things that are simple. It seems that meeting with God often happens over food. It's not surprising then that one of the church's sacraments involves eating and drinking. But it's more than that. Given the incident with Abraham welcoming the strangers, and indeed the incident we've read about this morning, it opens the possibility for a divine encounter over any meal. All of a sudden, food becomes important. Food matters. Meals matter. Hospitality matters. Table fellowship matters. All of this matters because God apparently likes to eat with people. Is it any surprise then that meals are an important theme in the story of Jesus? Now, I'm well aware that many families have various challenges around meals, and I'm not going to suggest that one format will suit everyone. But I will suggest that we might look at food in new ways. That meals in some way become sacred events. Several feature films demonstrate the power of food to bring goodness and redemption. I think off the top of my head, uh, Pig, Chef, 
talk a lot. Pieces of April. Ratatouille. But in my book, the pride of place in food movies belongs to Babette Thies. The 1987 Danish film tells the story of Babette who flees violence in 19th century Paris and arrives in a small village in Jutland, part of Denmark. For those who haven't seen it, spoiler alert. And she gets involved with a very conservative Protestant community. For 14 years, Babette serves as cook for the community, winning their favor. But with the passing of time, the community becomes more and more fractious and combative. At that time, Babette learns that she has won the lottery in France. 10,000 francs. And she decides to use the money to prepare a special feast for the congregation. A feast that would be served at the finest Michelin star restaurants in Paris, if indeed the Michelin star system had been invented yet. And indeed, the fine wine and the exquisitely prepared French food transforms the community and breaks down the animosities between people. And at this point, we learn that Babette had in fact been head chef at Café Anglais, one of the finest restaurants in Paris, and that she had now used all of her lottery winnings for this one meal. With the obvious message that good food is worth a sacrifice. Christians in the Celtic tradition speak of thin places, places where the distance between heaven and earth collapse and we come into touch with the divine. They are places where we are transformed in the presence of God, where we become more fully human. Celtic Christians believed there were certain special places where the presence of God could be felt more keenly. Even ordinary events of daily life could be thin places. Today I'd like, to, uh, I'd like us to imagine the possibility of seeing meals as a thin place. An ordinary daily event where we might experience the presence of Jesus. How might this affect how we do meals? The quality of food we eat, the time we take to eat, the way we cut a carrot, the interactions during a meal. Like I said, I don't want to suggest a single model for everyone or indeed to put guilt trips on people. But I'd like to suggest that meals matter. If not every meal, at least some meals. 
It is not insignificant that Jesus was recognized in the context of a meal. It is not insignificant that God is depicted as eating with his people. God has a way of meeting us in unexpected places, even in the most ordinary of daily events. Amen. Thank you.